From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics coming to you via Zoom. In the pandemic time, we have been coming to you via Zoom. This is Cade Massey hosting with all my compadres, Adi Weiner, Eric Broadlow, Shane Jensen, get the whole crew in here. This has been one of the benefits of via Zoom. We can get you guys, no matter what corner of the earth you fly off to, we can dial you in for a little Wharton Moneyball. We're going to do this for the next two hours. The first quarter will be COVID-19 related, as it has been. We'll do a couple of segments, open lines, open topics. We're going to close with an interview, Sam Goldberg, a new analyst data scientist from Major League Soccer. Those guys just kicked off their season this year. Guys, good afternoon to you. As we record, it's Monday rolling into the evening. It is evening on the East Coast. Good evening to you. How are you? How are things? Doing well. So big moment in uh, the U.S. right now. All states are making all people eligible for the vaccine. This is something we've known was going to come. We thought it would be April-ish when it hit, and it is. Um, so that's notable. I'm curious around the world of COVID-19, what else you find notable? What has caught your eye? Well, um, I've been doing some just sort of looking around at the data, um, particularly in the United States, uh, say Canada, England, sort of seeing how they're doing with the relationship between the vaccination rates and COVID rates. Um, surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, but maybe wonderfully, United Kingdom seems to be doing terrifically in the sense that their deaths are down, their cases are down. They have accompanied that with a fairly severe uh, lockdown, um, but they don't have anything quite close, even remotely close to the United States percentage of double doses because they haven't done the double dose. Right. That was an intentional strategy. It was intentional so that if you look at their their numbers, they're, they're a lot less than the United States. They're nowhere near the percentage, say, Israel has, but they look a lot closer to Israel than the United States does which sees, seems to me to be a pretty good vindication that their one-dose mechanism trick was a really good idea. And Adi, give us some numbers there. So the U.S. right now is, I believe, at 50% of adults have had at least one shot. And, you know, that's been a pretty We must be rise. above that by this point. Wasn't that at the end of last week? I think it was right at 50% uh, when I checked the chart. Yeah, we're, we're at, according to your world in data, um, the one-dose percentage is about 40% in the United States. Uh, above above 18, I guess was the... Was right, the right. That's true. So you have so to do some sort of um, trickery. I think it's, but I, so I'm curious... Adi, Adi are, you, are you attributing those lower rates in the United Kingdom right now for COVID to them kind of rolling it out in the... One shot. I am. I mean, it's hard. You know, these are hard. There's no perfect comparison. But Canada is an interesting comparison because they have a very, very strict lockdown and no vaccine, and they're doing terribly. Uh, things in in, in Ontario. I mean, I, mean I think Britain's a kind of a tough comparison because they basically generated the virus that's now sweeping the world, right? So yeah. <laughs> you know, they may just be kind of they may be through with that, and now we're you know, I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of the rates in America are being driven by this one that's already swept through the United Kingdom. 
So I, well, I just want to understand the math behind this a little bit. Just want to be clear. Roughly, and, and we're do, using rough numbers here, 25% in the U.S. have both doses. 50% have one dose. So if, let's assume for the moment that the same number of doses would have been delivered, one or two. But that's not obvious. But let's assume it would have been. Right. Then 75% of the population could have one dose now. Assuming, by the way, 75% were willing that's so right. is that where you're thinking of the counterfactual here would have been if the U.S. Well, had done the one-shot strategy, 75% would have one, and maybe we would just be starting the two-dose strategy for some people? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that, yes, we should have been much faster. I mean, we argue this, I mean, maybe I'm pat backing, you know, backing into an answer that I gave two months, three months ago, and uh, just looking for evidence that supports it, as we all know, confirmation bias. And uh, I know Kate and I, we were we were arguing on our program that this was a, a, a really good idea. And I think others were claiming, and we didn't invent it, um, the virology suggests that it's, that, that vaccination protection increases with time and that the usual booster shot is four months out, not not three weeks or four weeks out, and that we could have gotten a lot more people vaccinated a lot faster if we had done it then. Um, and maybe I'm just pointing to the United Kingdom, which has doesn't have nearly the, the penetration we have in society, certainly not with two doses, um, um, even though they, they I don't think they have as many even with single dose, but they've done really well. They've also coupled that with a lockdown. I mean, there's a zillion things that are not comparable. Right. I mean, I mean, this is the life, right? You know, this is, it's funny because when you want, I want to argue something positively, I'll ignore the things that are different. When I want to go after you, I'll be happy to, to bring them up. It, it, um, <laughs> it's just that, I mean, I, I think if you're, if, if you're going to want to present an argument that the U.S. has been kind of particularly slow about rolling this thing out relative to what it could have been, you've mm -hmm. literally got a handful, like two or three countries that you can kind of hold up as having perhaps done it better. Hey, no, I don't think we I don't think we did anything better or I mean the question is is should we have ignored the trial result like like Britain and then yeah. basically said let's just go for it. Um we remember we we have in terms of numbers of vaccines only the United States has gargantuan more than any other country. I mean, it's just not even close how many doses yeah. we've heard. All right, so I, I just want to yeah. ask I just want to get your prediction. And I guess I would argue get, I, I just want to make sure I understand your predictions here. So if the U.S. Let's, let's say there's three. I know. I understand <laughs> predictions. Let's say there's four. Let's say there's four, po three possible outcomes that you can imagine society caring about. But there could be more, many more. Let's call them cases, hospitalizations and deaths. OK. Do you think if the U.S. had done a one dose strategy and maybe you could answer these one at a time. Would cases be lower in your view, hospitalizations be lower, and would deaths be lower? Because you could argue maybe deaths would be higher given the focus has been on the severely ill populate or the severely risk high-risk population. I'm just wondering, do you think all three of these would be lower? What do you think the data suggests here? Okay, well, I, that's a tricky one because... Uh, well, I'm into uh, asking uh, you the tricky question. All right, so I, I, I would actually argue that all three would be lower. I would argue that deaths would be the least lower, if that's the make sense, if I phrase that grammatically okay, um, in the sense that we targeted the most um, most uh, at-risk people so early, and that so I don't think the deaths number would be down by that much, but a little bit more. Um, I think cases in particular would be down a lot relative to where we are if we had done the one-dose strategy. And I think cases are important because the psychology of COVID is often wrapped around uh, COVID cases, not deaths or hospitalizations.
So I well, hold on. Know, what do you mean? Hold on. What do you mean by that? I, and I don't know that I buy it. How, how we feel about it, how the country feels about it, how people feel about being outside and, and how few people feel about doing things and, and, and the economy returning to normal, people going back to work. Right now, there's a lot of activity. But as far as I, I mean, I, my understanding is office buildings are still simply empty. Um, and people are not back to work, if, even as much as people are starting to go out a little bit and see friends. So that's what I mean by the psychology, how you react to how you change your lifestyle. But the U.S. reaction is definitely, certainly now, much more f- towards openness than what the U.K. is going through. I mean, again, I, I think, as you said yourself, I think in trying to make that comparison, that's the huge confounding factor is that the U.K. basically has been in a lockdown, a fairly severe lockdown for all this year, whereas the U.S., at least in a lot of places, has really opened up. Yeah, but I just, I'll just throw out Canada um, is also been in a severe lockdown, but without vaccines. So maybe we can, can, mm-hmm. we can, we can talk about Canada and UK and compare them directly. So, and yeah, they're so, not doing well. Yeah, so. that's true. Yeah, so I, I want to, I wanted, since we're both a sports statistics and business show, we're all business school professors. Um, if this were a business and you told me that there was an alternative strategy that could have had lower cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. Or in marketing, we would say, there's an alternative strategy that's win, win, win. Customers would be better off, firms would be better off, and society would have been better off. And we say, but that wasn't taken. Then we start to say, so where's the chink in the armor? Where was the irrationality? If all of those could have been better, why was it not selected? And what assumptions or what constraints were there that would have led to a Pareto-dominated outcome. Let me jump in with an opinion. Okay. And it is, because it's a great question, and it is a very appropriate question, because we can't just sit here and lob, you know, rotten tomatoes at the decision makers without having some empathy for the position they were in. So one you did hear talked about was the logistics of keeping track of and getting people to come back for their second shot. And there was some concern about it's harder to do at a longer interval And so let's hit them kind of quickly and get it done. That was at least something that was talked about. But I think a stronger consideration was these things were vetted in a two-dose approach. And that's where the tests were done. And so that was like the orthodox way to go. And it's a little bit like asking, talk talk about making the connection to sports analytics. It's a little bit like asking the coach to go for it on fourth and goal whenever the conventional wisdom playbook has kicked the field goal. And he knows that, you know, Win, lose, or draw, if he does the right thing, he's only subject to, if he does the conventional thing, he's only subject to so much criticism. Going off script with these, with this regimen would have opened the decision makers up to more criticism. At least that's the way it plausibly felt as a decision maker. And, and, and I mean, the U.S. went by the rules or played by kind of the recommendation. Because they jump in. supply to actually do the two shot. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. I, I mean, the, the UK was for their hand was forced by not having the supply. I mean, you know, the supply to do it in addition to the fact that their main vaccine also is a one dose vaccine, right? England? No, England's not is not using the one do- dose. They're using AstraZeneca Pfizer. is not a one dose. No, I don't No, No, no. Uh, um, they've been using they are not using AstraZeneca. That's the that's the it's the rest of Europe that okay. got bogged down with right. AstraZeneca. No, they're they're definitely uh, using it, but I I mean, I mean I think Cade, you're absolutely correct that the, your diagnosis and the analogy to fourth down decisions is a hundred percent right. But the the actual but the equivalent of of a field goal or a punt in the medical world is what, what we all know of as the null hypothesis statif- uh, significance test, 
which is which is the standard technology of saying if the p value is less than 5% or at whatever percent you want to have as a threshold then only then do you do something as opposed to what what i think the the scientific measure and more economic oriented approach would be decision theoretic what's the type 1 error what's the type 2 error what's the cost associated with them and then do the uh, the expectation minimizer we don't do that and i don't think the fda d- did it that way they said let us not approve it until it meets a level of significance and because the testing was two dose there was never going to be any even a conception of them doing something outside of that. Eric is dying. So I'm bothered. In. I'm bothered by this. Yeah. And let me say why I'm bothered by this because awesome. <laughs> epidemiologists and they have to have known that essentially, I understand one dose, two dose, but if I could measure on, let's say on the Y axis, I have effectiveness. Maybe it's measured by antibody level, however you want to measure it. And then you have dosage or time, let's say on the x-axis, everybody's going to want to know what that curve looks like, whether it's one dose, two doses, 18 doses. And once I have that curve, again, time on the x-axis, let's call it antibody level on the y-axis, I can then start to say, okay, you know, you could have collected blood from these people throughout. And so why wouldn't you want to know that curve? That's the part I'm not getting. And why wasn't that yeah. curve knowable? And so, no, I'll tell you. Finish. Not... If you had that curve, you could then optimize <laughs> against it. So why? All right. Okay. I'm going to jump uh, in. Well, uh, okay. Right, I, uh, <laughs> well, and also, I mean, just kind of following up on Eric's point, um, well, I mean, we could have rolled it out twice as fast, even more, if we'd uh, just given a half a dose to everybody. Why didn't we just do that? Why okay. don't we give it out 10 times as fast and only give it a tenth of the dose? You know, uh, maybe it's because those dosage curve, levels we weren't tested. that I was talking about, that might have been yeah. optimal to do. Okay. All right. That's so right. The, let's, let's, okay. So here's the issue. The reason why they didn't do it, the, the reason why I think five, I mean, just speculation, right? Obviously, none of us are experts or, or actual virologists or people that work there. But my understanding from, from reading and talking to people was that the, the double dose is, is, has the biggest bang for your buck, if you will. And if you need to get this proven that it works as fast as possible, that was going to be the technique that works. In other words, to get it initially declared effective, they wanted to do the double dose, which is why they did it. Along the way, they didn't do it. They didn't do a third arm. Maybe that's what you're asking, Eric. They didn't decided not to do a third arm, and maybe they didn't do that because getting enough volunteers is tricky. I mean, these took time to pull it up. Now we know the answer. I mean, it's not like we don't know the answer. Now we know the answer, right. and that that at four, at four or five weeks with one dose, you'd have about eighty-five to ninety percent protective. That we know. Adi, by the way, what regimen did Israel use? Because Israel is kind of the world-leading country in terms of management. Israel did the two, the double dose. The thing that made it special in some level is that it had enough doses. Um, and and the, the CEO of Pfizer used, uh, he was just uh, interviewed, he explained what the goal was. And basically his view was it's a small enough country. It's a medical, it's a, it's a medically, it's a national health service. They have the data. Um, you couldn't pull it off in the United States. They wanted to know all these questions and the answer to them as quick as possible. And Israel essentially was the guinea pig. Now Israel overpaid. I mean, this be true. Yeah. They paid $50 a dose instead of 20 or whatever it is. Um, and so well, but they, we could talk got. about, we could talk about over what was the right. 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 But real quickly, is there is there was there any vaccine reluctance in israel is there any vaccine reluctance? oh y- y- yes not 
Okay. There is vaccine reluctance, and that was uh, that part of that was was um, the, the reluctant communities were are the, are were the were the ultra orthodox Jews and some of the Arab communities. They were they were reluctant um, for different reasons, and the leaders in those communities took initiative to make sure that they were publicly being vaccinated to kind of get their communities to go along. The other thing which made it a lot easier, we ain't doing it here. There's a green pass in Israel. You don't go into places without that green pass. Okay. You got to get it. And if you don't get it, you don't go. And, and it's, a, it's a source of controversy. By the way, the younger people are still a substance. There are some holdouts. It's the 20s and 30s who don't want to get vaccinated because they don't feel that they need to. Okay. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I think I was reading the New York Times today that one in five seniors has not taken the vaccine in the United States. In the now. U.S., right. That's right. 80%. So is that, are we starting to get like... You know, and that should not I mean, that could still be a distribution access issue for a lot of subgroups. But is that are we starting to then approach actually what the take up is going to be among seniors? I, like I want to see it. I want to see Eric's curve over time. Is it asymptotic yeah. is one way to think. Yeah. That we're really diminishing take up with each unit of time. And I said, I, I would bet that we are. I would bet with you, given how how slow things are going in certain parts of the country, I would bet that we are. So I, I want to build on what you said about 20 and 30 year olds, because I was thinking of this, you know, as a parent of a 15 year old, I wish for one moment in my life, I wish 16, but it's a 15 year old, right? Um, I wish, you know, if he only cared about himself, which one of these has a higher, let's, I know you've talked about this, the relationship between A's, like I think you said before, Adi, like he probably has more chance of dying of the flu, then he has dying of COVID and it flips. And it's obviously not the same for us in our fifties or, or maybe even Shane in his forties. <laughs> um, if a 15 or 16 year old only cared about themselves, just to remind our listeners, would they get vaccinated if the only thing they cared about was themselves? I think the answer to that question is we don't quite yet know. Um, there obviously have been, uh, there's two things we do know. We know that a lot of the teenagers or, or, you know, 16 to 18 year olds do get sick and a lot of, as, as do a lot of other people just for a day or two. Um, so they might say, gee, I don't want even two or three days of like some flu with some reasonably high probability. I'll just, uh, so if you, if that really bothers to young people and it, it might, that might be just the, 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 the break, you know, just that's the break point right there. If you're talking about a serious complication, I think those are, are too rare to worry about. I mean, really too rare to worry about. Um, and that, but on the other hand, um, but I do, there are enough, you know, teenagers who get somewhat sick. I mean, like really, you know, you know, out for a couple of weeks, lose their sense of smell. Um, it, that maybe it makes it warranted for them to, uh, to take the vaccine. But it's definitely a, a tricky point. I, they have to be, I think the goal is, the message should be that they're not doing it for themselves. Right. Do you have any change? You know, obviously one of the big things, uh, Cade started off the segment, you know, what caught our eye in COVID. Um, would you has your answer changed at all, given they were likely to give uh, students and teachers and others uh, the J&J vaccine and the blood clot issue that's come up? I think it came up in the last week or so, or at least since we taped our last show. I don't remember talking about it last week. It, Maybe it was we right. Did. It was right. It was right after or right as we were taping it. So we missed the chance. So would, would uh, Adi, would that switch your uh, idea now uh, that, you know, uh, they could get blood clots and, you know, maybe that increases it so that it, it tilts it one way or the other. OK, so it's that's interesting. So 
the J and J vaccine has seen six um, cerebral blood clots. Blood clots are pretty common. I mean, uh, they happen all the time for lots of consequences, but generally not in your brain. Um, that's a, a rare form. They've had six of them, which is not that different from the base rate in the population. So it's not even like conclusive that it's more than you just would expect over this time period. But let's assume that they were attached directly caused by the the vaccine and they might be because AstraZeneca is seeing the same uh, the same kind of cerebral blood clots they are the the approximate frequency is about 1 in a million just i i calibrated people on on that 1 in a million is about your chance of dying per day in a car accident so okay, taking so a vaccine you, once let, let, is just not sure, an issue let me make sure i understand what your what your conjecture is here it's not that the relation is spurious just completely spurious it's unrelated to the vaccine it's just that it's still sufficiently rare to not merit the overreaction well that would so i'm going to just point to a a, a, a post that uh that uh, alan salzberg who was a graduate from our stat department and phd in statistics um he has a a, a, a blog he did an, a calculation you know i don't think it's any it's this it's uh, it's any different than anyone else's but he estimates that we've lost about 50 lives to the stoppage okay so even if it is causing this it's it's still a and we i mean we we talked about this literally probably 6 months ago that when the vaccine comes out, there's going to be there are going to be some some side effects, and they'll be sufficiently minor that it'll be okay. But they will get so much attention it will be a problem, and that's exactly what this sounds like it is. But it really sounds problematic. And now back to Eric's question: If J and J was the intended vaccine of choice for the school systems, that could be a real problem. Yes, might be, Eric. <laughs> well, no, my my yeah. point is look. There's a couple issues that Kate just put up. One is um, there are lots of populations where giving them once is a lot easier than twice. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Two, there are a lot of people actually, their skepticism is about the mRNA nature of Moderna and Pfizer as opposed to the J&J, which is the old style virus version. We don't know much about mRNA. We've only been doing it. So it's interesting. No, no. I know factually there are people with more reluctance oh, to makes the sense. mRNA. So gene- people don't like virus. genetically modified foods. This, this must be a, a very a cousin to that. That's absolutely. So I think, <laughs> I think when we talk about, you know, like at the end of the day, we study this all the time. It's called reach. The assumption is, and I think Adi, you would agree with this. We could pump out more Moderna and Pfizer, but by adding the J and J, there will be a greater percentage of the population willing to get the vaccine. And that's where if that if if that changes because of the one in a million blood clot rate, then let me tell you, there are going to be lives lost. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) I wish we had a picture of Eric's one in a million blood clot rate face. Uh, one in a million. Adi just calibrated it. I, I'm an effect size guy. I've said it for seven years on one Monday. Adi just told me that's the chance I have of dying in a car every day. I hear you. I hear you. All right, guys, let's go to a, a new topic because what we've talked about so far, well, the blood clots we didn't have a chance to talk about next last week. And I suspect we'll be talking about for a long time, unfortunately. But the newest topic is this double mutation strain out of India. I think it's B1617 that people are concerned about. And We've seen the cases in India, the hospitalizations in India spike. I mean, crazy spike over the last few weeks. And now they're saying one of the reasons they think that's happening is this strain that they've identified down there. And by the way, it's traveled to a number of other countries around the world, including the United States. And so we're going to be talking about this strain for some time to come. Any 
any early observations of this B1617 other than you? I didn't hear that much about it, but I'm curious to know whether India was already overtaken by the British strain or this is or they weren't. And this is just another strain that is more um, uh, um, susceptible and communicates much more than than the original strain. I think I heard that they weren't doing that much sequencing until recently. And so they may not have it mapped that well. That's, That's I believe that's the case. Because the one thing we know about the British strain is that it is definitely way more contagious. It is almost I mean, it really is that the, the, the observations and, and calculations are accurate. I think there's a lot of argument. And, and the most recent data I saw on its on its on its mortality rate was it's not any different. Um, so although people keep reporting it being 67 percent more more fatal, I don't think that's true. But it certainly is 60 percent more transmittable. Um, the India one, I mean, I'm not particularly so, concerned. Cl- but- clarification, the conditional on getting it, it's got the same fatality or it's yes, no more yes. fatal. Okay. Yes. So it is, it is more damaging ultimately sure. because yeah, it's so much course. more contagious. More cases. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I, I'm less, I'm, I'm a more sanguine about the variance um, sort of idea. Although the, I think the Pfizer CEO, speaking of the Pfizer CEO did mention that he believes that we will be, we'll be taking one of his shots every year. Now that may be a conflict of interest on his part, but, but he believes there'll be a booster will be required every, every year, almost like the flu. To match the new variant. Uh, that, that raises the question of if you if you have the Pfizer vaccine the first time around, can you take a Moderna booster or do you have to do you have to stay within strain or can you can stay within company? Well, I've told Brand? you, Cade, one of the things just like they did when they made all these breakthroughs in HIV, they found uh, that cocktails tend to work. I've got to believe I, again, I'm thinking of this like an obstacle course. I used that analogy before. I'm willing to go with a varied obstacle course. It's going to have to get through my Pfizer vaccine. If I can take Moderna the next time, maybe I'm just making this up. Unless someone tells me it's wrong, I think it might even be better. Maybe I'll try the Moderna next time. Next Mm -hmm. time after that, I'll take a different. Let's make it go through an obstacle course of different uh, vaccines. Why not? I'm a believer in ensemble, so I'm totally with it with Eric. (laughs) Exactly. I'll I'll take the Moderna next time. So guys, and, and, and I mean, will it will it kind of be this kind of open market like it has been up until now? I mean, like the flu vaccine, who who does the flu vaccine every year? I, I've, I've never heard of Pfizer or Moderna or whatever name attached to our current kind right. of yearly vaccine. So how will that work for COVID? Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I would like to know how it works for the flu as a start starting place. Um, guys, here, winding down a little bit here, I, I think I have, might have an over under segment for us. So a moment ago, I speculated on whether the percentage of U.S. citizens above 65 who have had taken the vaccine is beginning to asymptote. And Matty D being on top of it like he is, he decided to listen to the show this time as opposed to go off and do one of his other jobs, which is good. And he sent me a link with a New York Times article from today of all things. And the curves are all up there for all age groups. The there are no, there's no trending down among the teens, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, into the 60s. A little bit of trending down for the 65 to 74 crowd, and I would say a fair bit of asymptotic behavior in the 75 plus crowd. Okay, so that suggests we may be hitting the limit. And it raises to me another question, which is, okay, when are we going to hit the limit for the general population? Let's say 18 plus which we just reported as 50% have at least one shot. Let's start speculating on where we think the natural limit is given vaccine reluctance out there. If we're seeing 65 plus folks asymptoting around 80%, maybe a little bit north of that, 
where are we going to see the adult population in general in the U.S.? What do you think? We're at 50 now with not a lot of sign of trending off. Well, I, I've just extrapolated those using my natural ability to forecast S-shaped curves. <laughs> and, and then I've extrapolated on the x-axis, which is time. And my prediction, given the shapes of these curves and the size of these, um, I would say roughly two months from now, which is June, mid-June, I think we'll be at a case where we'll be at what we've described as the highly reluctant or never vaxxers. I think we'll be at 75% or so by the middle of June using the shapes of these curves right now. Mm -hmm. That's just my mm -hmm. eyeball and trying to draw them. And just so our audience knows, I'm drawing like an S-shaped curve that goes, starts slowly, goes up steeply, and then asymptotes. And, and Eric, just, don't, you, don't you traffic in S-shaped curves for a living? I, mean, I do. What That's what we in marketing do. do. That's all we do. All us quant people in marketing do. We have advertising on the X-axis, probability of choice on the Y-axis, or in my educational testing days, we have ability on the Y-X-axis and probability of correct on the X-axis, and we fit S-shaped curves to everything. That is what we do. That is my business. Okay, some real-time data analysis from Eric Bradlow slash, you know, modeler, S-shaped modeler, and he's saying 75% ceiling and about a two-month window between now and then. So mid-June, asymptote, about 75% for the U.S. population. Now, Adi, resident health expert, what happens uh, yeah, to Yeah, resident health expert. Uh, you, can't, you can't, you can't. One thing that I'm absolutely not quibbling about is the S-shape. I mean, that is not a go, right? Yeah, um, right? The only question is where is it, where, where, where is the, where is the s um, centered. I, I don't, I think 75 is optimistic for this country. Maybe, uh, maybe I, maybe I'm, um, not getting it right. So I would guess under 75, more like 70 or even, yeah, 70 high sixties and probably a little later. Although the one, one wrench in this is that we can force certain generation to get vaccinated to 16 to 21 in particular through school. Yep. Um, and I'll just a quick anecdote. Um, my wife had a, um, had a, a, a request from a, from a student going back to college to get a religious exemption for the vaccine. And she sent back a short note saying, unfortunately, it's a religious requirement. That you do get the vaccine. <laughs> that you take the vaccine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I will say there's going to be a lot of regional heterogeneity yeah. It, it, even if you sort of say, oh, well, we can hit all the 60 to 21 year olds because we can force them to take it. There's going to be a lot of regional heterogeneity in just how, you know, politically we are going to force them to take it. I could imagine some states not necessarily enforcing or requiring that at all. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure, Adi, remember, you've, we've talked about this a lot of times. I just want to be clear, though. We're also talking about what I call, we've called it this kind of weighted average mathematics. And what I mean by that is, the people 65 to 74 and 75 plus, according to these New York Times curves, they're already at 80% that have had one dose, okay? So that population is already well above your prediction of 60-something percent, which means, and let's say that's, I'm making it up, let's say that's a third or 25 to 30% of the U.S. population. That means for the rest of the population, they're going to have to be down at around 55 to 60% to get the weighted average you're talking about. And I'm suggesting, I think their weighted average will probably be at around 60, two thirds to 70%. I think the older generated average will be, at, will be at about 85%. And we'll take a blend, a one thirds, two thirds blend, and we're going to get to 75%. Super interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, so, I, I so will say... Uh, Go ahead, Kate. No, Shane, Shane, go ahead. Well, I, I want to point out, Eric's talking about blending age groups to kind of break it down. 
which sounds useful. Shane's pointing out that you need to blend geographies, which is harder to do, or at the very least recognize that these curves are very different in different parts of the country. Shane, do you want to come in with a number on this? Yeah, no. And in fact, I mean, that's great for these sort of, because we're talking about hitting some aggregate mark across the US, but the kind of appropriate kind of, I think, answer, if, if we were talking about trying to get to some, you know, this herd immunity or something like that, where COVID actually disappears, is to not necessarily blend across all these different regions or across all these different age groups, but to actually separately, you, you know, to keep them separate. You know, I mean, if, if it is the case that we're going to have um, less adoption among the younger age groups, or those are the people that are potentially still going to maintain its spread in society, that's something we want to kind of acknowledge. And regionally, it could be a case where, you know, this is why it would still kind of keep popping up in certain parts of the country if we don't kind of get to that herd immunity in that specific, you know, in the, in the appropriate age groups in all places, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, guys. So I'll, I'm going to cast a vote on Audie's analysis. I mean, we wouldn't have anything to work with if Eric hadn't done it. So lots of props to Eric for giving us a benchmark. I'm going to take the under with Audie. I'm a little less sanguine, as Audie says, about take up around, around the country. And, and as Eric says, that's going to have to, that pessimism is going to have to be about the younger groups since we actually do have quite a bit of take up from the elderly already. Just one, one uh, short observation. I think that one, we all forget that the youngest is always the largest population in the, in the Yeah, country. right, right, right. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Of course, we're on our podcast edition, as we have been for the last year plus. But do not worry, Wharton Moneyball fans. We will be back in the studio at some point, I'm guessing, in the next academic year. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, and Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. And also in Q4, just so everyone knows, we have uh, Sam Goldberg, very interesting interview we're hoping to do. Um, he's a data analyst now, a newly hired data analyst for the Red Bulls uh, soccer team. So guys, obviously, um, we just spent Q1 talking about COVID. Um, and um, really, it, it was amazing that I went this long with us out just talking about baseball. And shockingly, in my mind, and I'd love to hear your reaction. Maybe we'll start with you, Adi, then to Shane. Um, the worst team in the American League right now, the worst, is the New York Yankees. And let's remember, it's only 15 games in, so maybe we, don't sh- we shouldn't panic. But I have a very specific question to start the conversation, then we'll go wherever you want. Um, if you believe their preseason forecast, which was around 96 to 97 wins, um, a team that wins 96 games wins 60% of their games, which means after 15 games, they should be 9 and 6, according to expectation, which means the Yankees are four games back of expectation. And Shane and I have had this conversation for the last few weeks. If I wanted to predict the Yankees' final record now, should I just subtract the four games below expectation they're at, which would take them down to 92? Or now that we've gotten 15 games, should I lower? Maybe they're not really a 600 team and I have to demote it or you know lower it even more. So Adi, let's start with you. Is five and 10 anything to worry about, or is it just four games below where they should be? Or what are you thinking right now? Uh, It's uh, a little bit to worry about. I have to say um, a nice rule of thumb um, that's suggested by baseball analyst and author of the book, Tom Tango. He likes to, he likes to say, throw in a padding of 15 and 15 and then, and use that as a, as, as a shrinkage. So shrink to one half with 15 wins and 15 losses. So the Yankees are five and 10. You want to count them as like 20 and 25, 
which would be exactly in 15. So wait a second. Your 20 and 25 is what is what there is what they're that, that's not you. But that's that that's not no, your no, estimate no. for what they'll be at the end of the season. No, no, of course not. No, no that's not, or not they're, at they're all. winning it just, proportion. It, it just, oh, okay. it, it just it, it's how I want to think about how they've performed relative to their their um, their preseason. So I actually think they're a worse team and I, and I would move them down a little bit. Not a 600 team is what I thought they would have been at the beginning of the season. And, I'm, and I would definitely move down, but not too far, just a couple of percentage points. So I would go with four losses below the 96 plus another two. So I'm forecasting about 90 for them. And I'm not sure that's going to be enough. Um, but, and, but if you want to ask me why I'll, I'll do come around on that after I hear Shane's thoughts on what he thinks. Well, think? I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think it. we probably have enough evidence where I would, I, I yeah, of course I'm loving it. Yeah. I mean, and I, but I always sort of, I, I've been saying to everybody about how much I've been loving it is I have to love it while it lasts because I do not believe this, this kind this of disparity between the Red Sox and Yankees but, will last. So, so let me just take it through because it can, the, Yankees, but, the Yankees have nobody is hitting even at their forecasted value. Everybody is down between forty and a hundred points. Below their, I mean, you have forget about Stanton at one seventy. You have DJ Lemayu at two eighty, or he's the he's the best. He's right. at two eighty, and he's only ninety points lower. Yeah, than they're all the, uniformly the like they're uniformly awful. And so that's the question yeah. that suggests to me that something kind of clubhousey opposition. I mean, obviously they faced some good some good pitching games by their opponents. Something has happened, which I think would su- suggest a a, a, a a return to the mean and hopefully soon. What's Maybe actually Baltimore, interesting, yeah, what's actually interesting about the math you did, Adi, so I just did a little calculation in our spreadsheet here. For the Yankees to get to 90 wins, which is the prediction you made, you are exactly right. They'd have to play 580 ball for the rest of the season. That would get them to 90. For them to get to 96 wins, they'd have to play 62% ball. So you are exactly right that the 2% is the number right now. In other words, if they perform 2% worse than we thought at the beginning of the season, they get to 90. If they perform 2% better for the remainder, they get back to 96. And I'm always one of those people. All right, so if I told you that a team won one-third of their games for the first 15 games, what odds would you give them to play near 600 ball for the remaining 147 that i mean i understand it's just 15 games but that that i can't believe i it would be that high no, it's I think not good wide, well answer. i except i mean you're you're not you're you're not ta- you you did you you know if you told me that team's preseason ranking was basically you know number two in the major league baseball right that would change you know, your calculus a little bit, right? It's not some random team starting like, you know, five and 10. It's, no, it's, it's a team I'm, that we I'm... basically picked to be the winner of the AL pennant, or at least yeah. the odds on well, favor. Let me for ask that. you in a different way, Adi, before you respond to that. If for me, if you would ask me for a 95% confidence interval for the Yankees win total at the beginning of the year, I would have said, I'll give you my number, and then I'd love to hear your guys' number at the beginning of the year and what you think it is now. If you had asked me at the beginning of the year, I would have said probably between – my first thought was 90 to 102. In other words, it would be somewhere in that range, maybe 88 to 104, but no wider than that. Now I'd have to go – first of all, I'd shift it downwards, but I'd have to go even wider. I mean, 88 is not my lower bound anymore for my 95% interval, and I'd even have to say 
81 maybe. Like there is a chance they're a 500 team and no better. But I'm interested in your thoughts. Not only – remember, we were, we've were we been talking about the mean. I'm asking you now to talk about the variance, Adi, and how wide you'd make your interval. I have to say, as you were speaking, I was forecasting what you're going to say, and it's, and it's exactly what I what it would have made, the exact prediction. I would have said about 88 to about 104 would have been my 95% prediction interval. At this point, I would have to put away – 104 down to 100 and I might I would go down to 81 and that's because it's it because you know if you think about it the fact that they could be a really mediocre team is on the table now it's a draw that's 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 reasonably it's not, it's unlikely but it's not out of the question which is what I thought it was going in I mean it's it's it is early and and, it, and they have and then of course you know they pace the same team a few times right so and and they've done they those teams could be outperforming but the Yankees are, and their hit, their pitching has looked good. It's not like their pitching has looked very good. So it's really just collectively their hitting has been awful, and that's got to come around. You know, one of the one of the um, the analysts at, at at baseball teams that I talked to before the season made an interesting observation, which is hitters are the most underprepared athlete in probably all of sports, in the sense that they spend the smallest fraction of their time facing what we would call in-game, true-level, high-level opposition. It only happens during actual games, and it only tends to happen three or four times per game. So if you think about how many, how much time there is and how much training they do, pitchers are constantly working on their, on their, on their, their technique. But hitters, they also do as well, but there's such a small fraction of that is genuinely facing an opponent who's trying to get you out. And therefore, getting to my punchline, the Yankees probably will get their act together once they've seen enough, you know, real high-level pitching. You know what's interesting, Adi, that you bring that up? I was just looking at this. I didn't realize this. I, I haven't normalized for the number of games. They're roughly the same, but not exactly. When I look at runs allowed and I sort by runs allowed, the Yankees have given up the fourth fifth fewest runs in the American League out of 15 teams. So it's not their pitching. If you had told me, by the way, if you don't normalize, and I understand some teams have played a few more games than others, the Yankees have scored the fewest runs in the American League. The mm-hmm. Yankees. I know. I've been watching almost every game. It's horrifying. I mean, it's Stanton looks, looks like he's just at lost up there. I mean, they seem to be reaching for pitches they can't ha- handle. And also, just and this, of course, is the defense is 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 the the uh, the defensive side. Their defense has looked awful. Well, that's 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 a big. Part yeah, no, of it. I mean that's got to be the frustrating. Yeah, I, I mean, must I, I? I almost feel the palpable frustration of Yankees fans when these starters put in rel- particularly good performances, mm-hmm. and they have to have all face all these extra at bat- batters, and 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 you know, like it really is kind of really hurt the. Yankees kind of locally in some of these games some of the fielding going on and that's that's the part that I think is less likely to kind of you know dramatically improve I I do think hitting can improve and hitting can improve fairly quickly because I think it's almost like a little super additive like you know one of the reasons the Yankees are looking so bad right now is, as you sort of said, every single person in their lineup is essentially underperforming their norms right now. You don't have to get that many of those players to start coming back mm-hmm. to their norms for that kind of for for there to almost be a su- uh, like almost a super additive effect in their improve- improvement. Well, guys, but on we fielding, have... I don't think it works that way. Or or more likely that this fielding is actually indicative of their true fielding ability right now. Well, guys, and not only just because Shane is here, but of course we have to go in the opposite direction. So now we have the, after their win today with the Boston Red Sox are eleven and six. Yep. 
So what do we now do with the Boston Red Sox, who I think were predicted at best a 500 team, maybe even a little bit below 500, right around maybe 80 to 80 wins, somewhere like that. So we have to be not just fair to the Red Sox, but how much do we upgrade them? I mean, do we, let's say they're three wins above their prediction, two and a half to three wins above, do we, and then... They're now an 11-6 and six team with a plus 28, by the way, which, by the way, is second in the major leagues after the Dodgers. So do we have to upgrade the Red Sox now? Maybe the Red Sox are a 90-win team, Adi. Well, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I have to say yes. But then there's also this peculiar phenomenon that the Red Sox have of losing, winning, losing, winning. If you buy into that that flip flop yeah. technology, they're a high variance on, on a seasonal level. They're very high variance. But predictably, team. I mean, it's like they were bad last year. The year before, they were good, and 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 that's that pattern more or less has held up something to that effect over the years. Um, they also are a really well run organization, um, and and their farm teams. Who's contributing? I'm not following the Red Sox because I can't bear it. Well, okay, so, who's so contributing? I, I mean. I'll say that they're hitting. I mean, they're hitting is the part that I think is sort of meeting expectation. Like we, I, I, I had confidence they would be a good hitting team, and their lineup certainly is. It started out a lot hotter than the Yankees, but like you know, I mean, they, I, I kind of expected them to hit. The big surprises has been, and certainly something they they did not have last year was reliable pitching, either in the relief or start or necessarily expect. You know, I don't think Nick Pavetta is going to continue to pitch at like the quite the level that he has so far, or Nathan Avaldi. I mean, those guys, Avaldi especially, is like you know, whatever we get out of him before he gets injured again is a good thing. But I don't expect that to necessarily maintain itself for the whole season. Well, just and so same you know, thing with the relief pitching. Yeah, just so you know, Adi, I'm looking quickly at the Red Sox stats, and then I want to move on to other sports. Xander Bogarts is hitting 386. JD Martinez has 20 RBIs. I don't think this includes today's game, or maybe it would have included today's game. He's got 20. RBI so he's on a pace for 200 um, and so they're getting some pretty <laughs> decent hitting um, yeah. and you know all of their guys unlike the Yankees they have four or five guys well over 300 and so they're hitting and they've got five guys uh, with a slugging percentage six guys over 800 so they're hitting the ball oh, sorry with an OPS they're hitting the ball and uh, the Yankees are not that's yeah you know, that wins you and game. that's the part that I would kind of expected the pit the, they're Pitching being pseudo-reliable is certainly the main difference maker from what we went through last year. Last year was just some of the worst pitching I've ever seen. Well, guys, since we're talking about over-unders, we talked about the Yankees and stuff, um, I want to talk to you guys about something you guys may not have seen because you don't necessarily follow tennis the way I do. But at the first major clay court tournament of the year, the first Masters 1000, just to remind all our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, there's the four majors of the year, of course. There's going chronologically throughout the year. There's the Australian Open, which is played on hard courts. Then comes the French, which is played on clay. Then there's the Wimbledon, Wimbledon, which is played on grass. And then there's the U.S. Open, which is also played on hard courts. And so um, Novak Djokovic won the Australian to get to 18 majors. Um, the French, obviously, Nadal has won, I think, 13 times, including like, well, 13 out of the last 14. He's only lost once there. Um, Nadal was just beaten on clay in the quarterfinals of the Paris 1000 by Andre uh, Rublev, and Djokovic was beaten by Dan Evans. And so my question to you guys is, is this the year that someone breaks through? Djokovic is going to be 34 this year. Nadal's going to be 35. Federer is going to be 40. Is this the year finally where the changing of the guard happens in tennis? And is this symptomatic of that changing of the guard? Well, I would say that it's got to be a 50-50 chance in any given. I mean, these guys are getting 
so so old <laughs> in tennis terms that you have to figure one of them. It's it's about time. So I, I'm going to say yes. This is the year. Shane, what do I'll you think? I'll say it. I'll say. Sure. I don't think it's going to be on clay, though. I, I don't think it's going to be the French Open specifically, right? Unless Nadal's injured or something. I I, I mean, that one seems to be kind of the most like the, the separation him, between be Nadal Djokovic. and everybody else is that much greater. Yeah, well, yeah. Ones, I, 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 if the breakthrough happens, I think it's more likely to be, you know, I guess at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open. Well, let me put two counterpoints and see if this changes your guys' mm. probability. Number one, let's remember who's been in the finals of the of the French Open against uh, Nadal the last couple of years. It's been Dominic Thiem, including beating Djokovic. So, number one, maybe Thiem wins it. And by the way, he has a major now, so maybe he does. Here's something else which you guys may not be thinking about: the way tennis seating works. Let's remember, someone doesn't have to beat all of the big three anymore because Djokovic is one. Andre Medvedev, mm-hmm. that's right, Daniel Medvedev, Daniel Medvedev is two, which means he's on the opposite side of the draw of Djokovic, not Nadal, not Federer. Look, as far as we know, for the French, Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer could all be on the same side of the draw. They could all have to beat each other as opposed to someone having to get through all of them. I mean, it, it could turn out now. Remember, they used to say the reason nobody else can win a wager. Sure, you could beat Federer once out of a thousand. But take one out of a thousand cubed and you're not beating all three of them. Well, that they may have to eliminate each other now. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it makes the over more likely. So I'm sticking to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and as well, your kind of your, your observation that we often make when talking about these lengthy kind of major tournaments is that I think the variance of each of those guys certainly. I mean, their their mean does not seem to be dropping as much as maybe we would have predicted given their advanced age. But I think their variance is increasing. Certainly, Federer's in Federer's case, his kind of between match whether you, you know you're not going to get that great Federer or as injury, often injury as he used propensity. To. He may get yep. injured. He may not be able to play seven yep. five set matches to actually win a major anymore. He hasn't played. I mean, he's played one tournament or yeah, one tournament in the last six to eight months, and he won the first match, lost the. The second and that was best of three so we absolutely could happen i wanted to bring up something else related to age guys that you guys may not have seen um and you you, you know who this golfer is even though you don't know who this golfer is so there's a 47 year old golfer by the name of Stuart sink who won his second tournament of the year which is remarkable there's only been four golfers in the history of golf that have even won two tournaments beyond the age of 47 one was sam sneed one was a guy named Kenny Perry. I don't remember who the other one was, but um, it might have been, I don't know. It might have been Julius Boros, who actually uh, has the record for winning the oldest tournament. Um, but he's now won two tournaments this season. He hadn't won in 11 years. My question to you is, how shocked are you that a 47-year-old has won two tournaments already this year, where the, ter- the year's only like five, six months old. And what do you think this says for, like, are you going to start elongating golf players' careers to now, maybe it should be 50, 55, where these guys are competitive until? Well, I, I, I'm, there's been an elongation, certainly in tennis. Um, I don't know how that compares to other sports, I know that baseball has not had an elongation. If anything, it's had a con- contraction. I don't know how, what. Why do the... you think that is in baseball? Uh, forget PEDs, which which led to a lot. Well, of that, I mean, yeah, 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 for, yeah. For, Forget the reason I think it's happened in baseball. Okay, I mean, I mean, I, I think actually, beyond beyond 
the lack of PEDs, it's also the teams have oriented more towards youth because yeah. they can no longer like team building. Team building is less based on free agents in their mid thirties being signed compared to now. Yeah, like like back. But the finan- know, the financial uh, um, yeah. incentives are to keep them young, yeah. but still, you don't see that many players once they're unless they're stars. Um, just continue, pay, you know, in, into their mid thirties. I mean, Jay Bruce just retired. Um, how old was he? Thirty four. Thirty four. And I mean, that's. I mean, thirty seven, thirty eight would be a, a, t- a more typical retirement age for a person of having a long career. Thirty four seems like a long career. But getting back how, to golf, um, what was that, uh, Shane? You, I was just going to ask how long Stanton's side with the Yankees, but that, that's kind of me. Yeah, I mean, listen. Well, how old will you be when that contract's over? <laughs> yeah. How old will I be or Stanton? Yeah. Stanton, I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, so so just getting back to golf, my, uh, um, my the reason why I think it, it's, it's, it's good is that the, the things that you can't turn back the, t- the clock on are, are, uh, is quickness, and, and that's really something that you just your your reaction time, which is always amazing with the ten, tennis players. I mean, I think that the reason why they continue is because they is their fitness levels are so much higher, and they're able to keep that up with 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 more money, with less play, with better training. I think some of those things will transfer to golf as well. I also think that the new golf game is. Um, I don't think there's anything in golf that 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 makes it impossible to have a career into the late forties. And I think that all the training analytics make it even easier and they'll get stronger and they'll keep their strength. And I think you'll see, you'll see it. You'll see a lot more uh, peak performances at, at higher ages. I think also just to finish up on this, the one thing I, I don't know why I was looking at his stats the other day, but I was looking at Albert Pujols stats. He literally had 10 straight seasons above 300. And now he's had 10 straight seasons below 300 in his OPS. He had 10 straight seasons above 900. Now he's had 10 straight seasons, I believe below. And so there's just an example of what is normally happens in baseball, possibly without PEDs. So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, please stay with us and join us again after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, uh, Shane Jensen, professor of statistics, and Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. Some combination of the three of us, Cade Massey, who was here for Q1, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball. Obviously, this is the Zoom online podcast edition but don't worry fans soon enough we'll be back in the studio live but either way between now and then we want to stay with you in the world of sports so guys one very big obviously event i guess you could call it a sporting event coming up soon is the nfl draft it's coming up on april the 29th um right now it's all just still speculation and you know we're all reading people like mel kuyper and we're looking at all the different forecasts of the draft so I'm just wondering, guys, has anything caught your eye in the speculation about the draft right now? Well, I think the thing that I ha- is fascinates me the most right now is, is basically what's going to happen at the number three, and number four positions. I, I feel like, you know, a lot of at least the media has coalesced around Trevor Lawrence, number one, and, and seemingly Zach Wilson at number two to the New York Jets. Um, but what San Francisco did, of course, was pay a, a pretty, uh, you know, substantial amount to move up to the third position. Um, which implies they kind of had a guy that they really wanted to get at that third position. But yet, at, you know, in all the speculation, I mean, it, it, it's a random draw, which quarterback, depending on who you talk to, which quarterback they're actually going to select. They, I mean, they've been linked to Trey Lance. They've been linked to Matt Jones. They've been linked to uh, Justin Fields. Fields. So, I mean, what they, you know, I mean, I think they clearly 
probably had a particular choice in mind when they made that trade. I doubt they would have just made that trade, you know, wondering about the three of them, but they're certainly cannot be accused of not doing their due diligence. They've been going to every single pro day of every single one of these guys. So I think they, they certainly have not been telegraphing much what they're going to do. Well, I think we all agree on the following. If they're, we could all debate on whether it was a good trade to move up to number three anyway, but we all would agree. It's probably one of the worst trades in the history of the NFL. If they end up not taking a quarterback at number three, that would be shocking if they didn't take yeah. a quarterback at number three. And I think we'll also, I think Shane, you've listed the three that it's going to be, by the way, I don't know with certainty that the jets are going to take Zach Wilson. Maybe no, that's right. Maybe that's so. Right. But if you told me they took a lot of people have Justin Fields, number two on the, on their big board, I would be shocked if they took Mac Jones. Cause I don't hear anybody say he's got the same upside as Justin Fields or Zach Wilson, but I wouldn't be surprised if the jets took Justin Fields. Although I do think it's going to be Zach Wilson. No, well, I, I just think it's interesting that the, uh, you know, that, Mac Jones was so strongly linked to the San Francisco 49ers, at least when they taught when they at the time that they made that trade, given that it doesn't seem like he's been as strongly linked like, you know, the, as you sort of said, I don't think he's been particularly strongly considered in the same class as Fields um, or, or Lance, like, you know, the New York Jets choice set or, you know, in whoever comes after the uh, San Francisco 49ers. So you know, just a couple of years ago, short couple of years ago, it was the Jets took uh, Darnold at number two, I think. Number two is correct. Number two. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you think about their trading, trading him? And we never actually unpacked whether that was, it was highly, you know, you know, it was interesting move because Darnold has shown has shown flashes of greatness. He's not been given anything at the at the Jets, and will they give him any? Whoever they take next year, anything? It's just, I mean, are they really doing the right thing? What do you think? I mean, I, has he shown flashes of greatness? Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's shown been, flashes of not being terrible, but he's he's been mostly terrible with flashes of occasionally not being terrible. I don't okay. know. I'd have to I'd have to kind of think back to what greatness we ever saw in him. So, I mean, I think the the reason he lost value is not I mean, because he clearly was also inhibited by a terrible, you know, talent around him and seemingly pretty poor coaching. So I think that's the reason teams are interested in taking a chance. I, I, I can I think the reason he was not so highly, you know, that the Jets weren't able to get more for him is that it's unclear that he's actually shown that above average even potential at this point. I think point. what you have to do also, Adi, is you have to think to yourself, you know the Jets at two. We, we, we were on the air last season, basically, when the Jets won those last games and gave lost the, Justin Lawrence, lost the uh, Trevor Lawrence sweepstakes. Um, you have to ask yourself the question, how good do you think the other quarterbacks are? In other words, if you're not sure about Zach Wilson, who, by the way, I'll just remind all our listeners here, He's played 17 games in college. If you're not convinced that one of these other guys is fantastic, you could have traded out of number two, kept Sam Darnold, filled, I I don't want to say receivers or can't miss because they can, but I don't know. There's three or four receivers in this year's draft that seem like, you know, Jamar Chase, Waddle, Devonta Smith, that seem Kyle Pitts. Incredible, right. That seem like almost can't miss in the NFL. You could have probably filled three or four holes with elite level players by trading down, keeping Darnold, and then finding out, is it the talent around him or is it him? And let me just say, if you're bad and you're the Jets, 
and you're bad for another year, you can always trade Darnold, and you could have drafted another quarterback the following year. So the only reason to do it was you literally believe that the second, third, fourth, or fifth quarterback, whichever one the Jets are going to take, that that person has a much higher upside than Darnold. I have to say, I, I can't believe it. And, and, and just to throw one other wrench into the system or thought into the system is that with, good, with better players where they could have traded down, gotten a whole bunch of terrific receivers, for example, Darnold would have still not been great, even if he wasn't great. He would have looked better. And you could have, but you can used that his stock would have risen, and he would have gotten more for you in a, from a trade. And then, of course, the next year they could have gotten their quarterback if they were still bad. Well, uh, no, unfortunately, that's it's a unique opportunity having the number two pick. Yeah, but I'm like, not. Just, I mean, uh, like I mean, this this scenario you talk about where they amass enough talent for Sam Darnold to be, you know, better but not great. All of a sudden, now they're like a, a six and six, yeah, six, right. eight, yeah six. like like a, like a seven and ten team, and they're like picking in the mid teens, and then they can't actually, you know, get a quarterback. They're not going to get the kind of ta- then they end up having to trade their talent to like actually get climb up for a new quarterback. Well, let me ask you a question. Some the great quarterbacks that immediately come to my mind are like you know, Mahomes and Brady. They, they went deep in the in the draft. Yeah. Um, well, one of them much deeper than the other. Mahomes that's I think, true. was the 10th pick in the draft. All right, so my question is, is that what is the expected value differential between 3 and 10? 2 and 10, even. I mean, it would, I, I would imagine I that 1 is really, is, is really strong. That usually happens. Um, so what's the difference between 2 and 10? Is it really well, that think, big? I think a different way to think about it, Adi, just because of the specific topic we're talking about is, you're talking about at number 2, you have this, let's say you're, thinking about quarterback you have the number two quarterback at number in the two pick probably the 10th pick which a lot of people think the patriots are going to probably trade up to get or something like that you could probably get the fourth or fifth quarterback maybe at number 10 i think most people believe i think it's unlikely and you think if you think five all five of those quarterbacks will be gone by the 10th pick i think so wow well then, Adi. So then, you if that's to... I don't. I mean, that seemed to that happened last year, was it, or was it? When was it that that happened? That so never. Many there's never been never, five right. quarterbacks taken in the top ten. But if Shane, if there's been four saying... taken in the top five, right? I don't know. The, the, year, the year there was Mayfield, uh, Darnold, Rosen, and uh, um, uh, uh, the one, Jared, uh, Josh, Josh Allen. Allen. Weren't those all top ten picks? That could be. All right, are you saying that basically that Jets were the only one that they, of those four only only Darnold has been a stinker? Is that and, right? and, and, Allen. And, and, Allen has been a stinker too. Not Allen. No, the, no, 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 no. Rosen, 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 Rosen. Rosen, Rosen I, it was only it was, Mayfield and Allen are ones that are considered hits. And I mean, even right. Mayfield, I think people are a little unsure whether he's really going to be yeah, a so franchise let's focus quarterback. On that, Shane, certainly, Allen was a great hit. point. Four quarterbacks were taken there. I think everyone yep. would say Josh Allen. You hit the jackpot. I would say Mayfield probably underperformed so far compared to an overall number one pick. You have two other quarterbacks who haven't prepared that well. And yeah, and as our producer Matt Datz has pointed out, a lot of people might argue the best quarterback in that draft, Adi, was the person picked number 32, which was Lamar Jackson. Mm -hmm. And so I think people Mm -hmm. put way too much certainty in, I know Trevor Lawrence is going to be the best of this five. No, you don't. No, I, I mean, exactly. No, I, I don't necessarily I, I, believe that number ten is, uh, the, or or the quarterback picked at the tenth position is so is a, such a terrible thing. I don't think the data it really supports this idea that 
that you that the number one pick for a quarterback is that good um and maybe number one is i'm not gonna i'm not sure but i'm after that i'm not so i mean think about who are the number ones who have been great was it peyton manning was Peyton manning one, right yeah he was pretty um, good andrew luck andrew luck was number one john elway john elway but there but but uh, there are many many there's James about 30 Win- over that Winston. time alex smith let's honor alex smith yeah. The day he retires, as, but not Alex as great. Smith. But we can honor Alex. Smith. Oh, I mean, you. I mean, you, I, you, if you got Alex Smith out of your first uh, number one pick, you'd consider that a success. He had ten years of above average quarterback play by far, so that would be considered. He was never great, but he was a very a good to very good quarterback for ten years. Absolutely, no, any team yep. would take that. Yep. Jared Goff, I see, put up there. Jared Goff's on the borderline. I think right now the, the jury's out on, on whether Jared Goff. We know Jameis Winston was the first pick in the draft. That wasn't too good. I, you, Is I, Matt Stafford a number one? Matt Stafford no. was the number one pick in the draft. And by the way, yeah. you, would and, uh, you would definitely Matt take Matt Stafford. Day. You would take Matt Stafford all yeah. day long. Uh, Sam but Brad- I, and I, I, I Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you do. I, I just, my, my statement was less about, you know, the certainty of Trevor Lawrence versus these, these other guys. I just think there's enough, I think increasingly um, you're the, you know, it, it, teams are realizing how important like quarterback is basically everything in this league. And I think teams are going to be increasingly prone to trading up to get quarterbacks, you know, there are, there's four, there are the reason I believe like four or five will go in top 10 is I, you know, I think there's going to be four or five teams that are going to be desperate enough to kind of trade up to get to there. I don't think there's going to be one of those top four or five quarterbacks left, maybe at number 10, but certainly not by number 15. So let me ask you another question. And I think that's, that's not something that historically is, 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 I think that's a kind of somewhat of a new trend. Let me ask you another one last question, and then I want to move to I, I actually loaded in our spreadsheet the over-unders for the season, and thanks, Shane, for pointing out it's out of 17 games, not 16. Do you think there's anything to stylistic matches? Like, for example, a lot of people have the Patriots trading up to get Justin Fields, and I have to admit, I can't think of a quarterback so different than Tom Brady as Justin Fields. In other words, people aren't Justin Fields is thought of as extraordinarily athletic. He's thought of as great speed. Um, his accuracy needs some work, but certainly he's a very good quarterback by anybody. As a matter of fact, I have him as the second or third best quarterback in the draft. But can Bill Belichick, can the coach, the greatest coach in my view of all time, can he adapt himself to the style of quarterback? Or do you think there would be a challenge even for Bill Belichick to adapt to a quarterback who's got the mobility and athleticism that he has? What do you think, Shane? I think, I mean, I, I mean, I'm very interested to see what Bill Belichick does with a hopefully uh, even healthier Cam Newton and like a little bit better talent around him even this season because that would help give us partial answer to that question. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's a great question. I mean, I think the more general kind of like does this particular player we're considering match kind of our coaching star star of the team? I, I think that's a fascinating question for a lot of teams. I do think the Patriots, at least as far as one can guess it their drafting strategy tend to usually be more focused on kind of best player available, whatever that happens what worries to be. me is something you said earlier is when they say San Francisco has their eye on Mac Jones because he fits their style. I'm thinking, oh, my God, no. I mean, yeah. Oh, the minute you start saying that, you're telling me, I mean, if that's true and there's actually something they think is a better quarterback, but Mac Jones fits their style more, that starts to concern me a lot. 
<laughs> yeah, and I mean, you've seen, I, I feel like there's been both successes and failures in that. I mean, you know, I mean, Kyler Murray going to the Cardinals is an example where it really seemed like they were excited about him, not, you know, that was one where I think there was an argument of, both that not only that he was a great athlete, but that he fit that the particular style of what uh, Kingsbury was setting up there in Arizona. So that's one that where the matching seems to kind of have worked out for them. Um, but I agree that like, I can't, I think you can really kind of overthink the situation too. If you really start digging into the weeds of particular styles. Cause I mean, you know, you, you could do that and have one good season and then your offensive coordinator leaves and all of a sudden, like, you know, it, it, it you know, the quarterback is no longer the great fit for your team that you thought he was going to be. Yeah, guys, in the last few minutes we have in the show, I wanted to, um, I downloaded the NFL over-unders, and this is predicted by, it's really kind of an ensemble of different measure, of different forecasts for the over-unders for the season. I wanted to go through a few things that caught my eye, and I just wanted to get your guys' reaction to it. So the first thing that caught my mind, and Shane, thanks for correcting me again, it's, it's out of 17 games, but that the NFC West, I always love to do this every season. Let's add up the total number of predicted wins for each division and see which division is actually predicted to be the best and which one's predicted to be the worst. So the first thing is, if you start with the NFC West, they have the Rams over 10.5, 49ers at 10, Seahawks at 10, Cardinals at 8. So that's 38.5 wins for that division. If we want to look at the worst division, I think it might be the AFC East, which is something at like... No, it's not. I think no, no, no. The, it's definitely the, the not South. the NFC. Probably the NFC North, the Packers, Vikings, Bears, Lions. Is it like a 16, 20, 32 wins as opposed to 38 and a half wins? Um, no, sorry. It's the Colts. It's the AFC yeah, South. Yeah, I think it's the it AFC South. 30 and a half because, wins. By the way, that's yeah. a huge difference. You're predicting one conference to have two less wins per team than another. So let's start with that. How do you think? Let's just start with that. Do you think the NFC West is the best division? Do you think the AFC South is the worst division? And do you think an eight-win difference between those two makes sense in totality and its coherence? Yeah, I do. I mean, because I really do think that. I mean, for, I, I do think two of the worst teams in football definitely reside in the AFC South. I think uh, the, the Houston Texans were really bad when they had an amazing quarterback playing for them. And it's unclear that they will even have that this season. Um, and the Jaguars obviously didn't win a game, right? So I mean, it's it, it's it's like you know, and so I mean, I don't I doubt that Trevor Lawrence, as amazing as he's going to be, is going to turn that whole thing. Even Peyton Manning took a couple seasons to turn that whole situation. Well, around, even so. if that's true, then wouldn't you maybe jack up the Colts and the Titans because they are going to play? Colts are going to play four games against the Jaguars and the Texans. I mean, four total. And so yeah. if that could add a bunch of expected wins right there. So maybe Colts at 10, maybe that's an opportunity for an over. How do you think about that yeah. logic? Well, I, I, and I, I think that is kind of the right logic in general. I would just sort of think maybe this is kind of a biased historical memory, but I feel like, you know, there's always one or two terrible teams in the AFC South, but the one the games that they do play well is against other members of the AFC South. So I, I, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily bank on those being two out of wins specifically for the Titans and the Colts, but I think they are kind of baked in it that, you know, that both the Colts and Titans, um, you know, we're slightly above five, you know, the Colts were slightly above 500 team, you know, last year having getting to beat up on the Jaguars a couple of times with Philip Rivers. And so I think, you know, them, you know, uh, you know, taking, uh, I would put them at about 500 be, and with high variance because who knows what Wentz is going to give them. Well, let's also go to the low variance uh, conditions. So the Cowboys are at yep. nine and a half, 
the Eagles and the Giants are at seven, Washington's at eight. There's only a two and a half win difference between the best and the worst. The same is true for the NFC West. So do you, do you call those the most competitive divisions in football? Like if I told you any four teams, let me ask, I'll ask, I'll phrase it in a more precise way. If I told you any of the four teams in the NFC East won the division, would you be surprised? And if I told you any of the four teams in the NFC West won the division, would you be surprised? I'd be I a little be. surprised if the Cardinals won the NFC West, but that, I mean, they could do it. They could do it. I would be well, surprised certainly, but it's, it wouldn't be the worst, the craziest thing in the world. But I, I mean, you use the word competitive and I mean, the NFC East last season every, were competitive in the sense that every single team was in playoff contention in that division up until the final couple weeks of the season. But would you have called that the, one of the more competitive divisions in football? No. Yeah, you know, they're competing for the no. bottom. <laughs> That's what they were yeah. But somebody for. makes the playoffs. Somebody was going to go yeah, to the – Someone was going to go right. to the playoffs. And the other thing that caught my eye in, in just the last minute or two that we have is – which team between the first and the second place team has the largest differential, and that's the Chiefs. So if I had to ask you to pick which team has the highest probability to win their division, is it the Chiefs? Uh, probably, but I think the Bucks, man. I mean, like, I, I feel like the Bucks are, I mean, they'll probably regress just a little bit because they had an amazing season last year. But I mean, I feel like the other teams in that division are heading the other direction. And I mean, just uh, Matt Ryan's not getting better. The Panthers, who knows what they're doing at quarterback. The, the Saints, Saints, obviously, no more Drew. I mean, Jameis Winston or Taysom Hill's their starting quarterback. So you actually put the Bucks as the highest probability to win their division. I, I, I don't. I'm going to go with the Chiefs. Or I, I would I would put them commiserate with the Chiefs. I would put them commiserate. You know, with the I, I mean, I, I, he, he, he can't live and be this effective for this long. I mean, Brady's got to get, get, I mean, every year I've been predicting it and every year I'm wrong, but I'm going for this. <laughs> You'll year. eventually be right. You'll eventually be right. You'll Let's just be, be clear. Right. We're talking about the world champion uh, quarterback, Tom Brady. So I can actually say that. <laughs> All right. Okay. That's enough for me. I'm signing off right now. <laughs> well, speaking of signing off, we're all signing off uh, until quarter four. So this has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Please stay with us after the break. Where we'll be talking to Sam Goldberg, uh, a newly hired data analyst with the. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Traditionally, our interview segment, at least since the pandemic hit, we've been doing interviews in Q4. Delighted this week to welcome Sam Goldberg to the show. Sam is data scientist for the New York Red Bulls. Red Bulls are in Major League Soccer here in the U.S., which kicked off this past weekend, kicked off their long season this past weekend. And Sam is crunching numbers for them. He's in his first season there after having worked in baseball, of all things, worked for the Cubs, worked in development for the Cubs. And before that, he was in soccer with D.C. United. So, Sam, delighted to have you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. What is the vibe around the clubhouse right now? First weekend, I know you guys didn't open the way you'd like to, but still, you must have some of that early season excitement, yes? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're really, really pumped to, be, uh, to, get, to get going, I should say. And, uh, yeah, really looking forward to the long season ahead. So um, data science for the Red Bulls, what, what does that look like? And, and what, is the, what does the group look like? Are you a one-man shop? Are you part of a big team? What, what is the setup there? Yeah, so it's, it's different at every club, but, but here uh, I'm, I'm the first data scientist that was hired by, by the club. And I work with a bunch of other guys uh, in terms of video and, and analysis in, in different practitions. So, but I'm the first data analyst here, data scientist here, I should say. And you just rolled, when did you start actually? 
so my start date was about two months ago to the day. Um, and I've, uh, yeah, I've been in, in and around the office now for, for a few weeks. So give us, before we dive in, Eric's already dying to get in. I'm going to hold him off for just a quick second. Give us a sense of, you know, walk into a building for the first time as the first data scientist. What is, what's the order of business? Like, what are your priorities? What have been your priorities over the last two months? Well, you know, first off is just gauging the interest, right? Obviously there's some interest or else they wouldn't have brought the role in. Um, but it's still, you know, there's, it's always assessing the amount of buy-in that you're going to have to, to fight for. Um, mm-hmm. Luckily here, everybody is very open to innovation. Um, you know, everybody really wants to learn and, and grow with data, which is, which is more than can be said for, for most clubs in the world. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a really great environment. Um, everybody here is phenomenal and really, really just excellent at what they do. So to walk into that environment immediately is, is something that I've looked forward to for a long time. I'm familiar with where data science usually lives in various other professional sports franchises, sports teams, but, but less so with soccer. So who does your group report up to? So uh, my group is on the player recruitment side of things, but we also, I also do work across uh, different departments. Um, you know, the reporting structure changes at various clubs, but since MLS has pretty small front offices, normally everybody's very close in, in the topics that, that we discuss. Mm-hmm. So in, in football, a lot of the data guys are with personnel and then, the, the, one of the questions is whether there's anybody on the coaching side and there's kind of an on-field decision-making um, path that analytics can take. And then there's a the personnel side. Is there a similar divide in soccer? You're, you're said you're sitting with the recruitment side, but then to what extent are coaches and in-game analysis, does that fall within your portfolio? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's completely dependent on the club. Um, there's some teams that do absolutely nothing with data and others, you know, that are trying to do a whole lot. I think uh, there's some, there's some really interesting stuff that you can do, you know, before the game, post game, in game with player personnel. You know, I think you guys have spoke about it on the show before data can be used with literally everything. And so trying to find a good niche of, of using that is, 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 I think our goal, right. Is to be able to find an impact for it. Well, so give us an example of something. Let's make it concrete. Give us an example going into week one, whether it was for the game or whether it was where you are in the recruitment cycle, what were you doing last week? Like what were you trying to produce for the powers that be? last week well i i mean i can't i can't dive too into too into specifics obviously um but it, it really is dependent on the day um any any day it could be whether we're evaluating a player whether we're evaluating a team that we're playing you know it, it it's pretty much as you would expect um so yeah it, any given day any given moment it could it com- could completely change Mm-hmm. So, so Sam, I was always wondering this, and we've talked about what we call the scorecard, which is if this were a baseball game, and I know Cade's going to want to dive into baseball, we all know what the box score looks like in baseball. For example, I'm not saying that's all the stats, but like how many at-bats did you have, how many hits did you have, runs, RBIs. What does a scorecard look like in soccer? Like I know the score of last week's game was 2-1, to one, okay? But if you just go one level down from that, can you help us and our listeners here at Wharton Moneyball understand what the scorecard looks like for soccer, like number of passes, number of assists, like win rate? Like what are those statistics that are generally in the field? Yeah, so I think you you look at total involvement by team in possession time, and that's what a lot of coaches would use. You know, my job as every other data scientist in the league would say the same thing is we want we want our coaches, our staffs to look at you know, things that have a little bit of a deeper meaning around the game. So one of those is expected goals. Um, you know, for every shot, you can calculate the win, like the probability the shot goes in, and that's the expected goal value. 
And when you add those up across, you know, a game or a season, you can get the true goal value for a team. Um, and then you can take the differences to measure, measure finishing, things like that over time. Um, so I would say expected goals is a really good way to look at, you know, the true chance quality of each team. Uh, you could look at passes that enter the final third or field tilt, which is the percentage of touches within the attacking third as well. Um, so there are a lot of metrics similar to that that bring out some different themes within the game that that we can look at rather than just goals or assists, which, you know, obviously there's a lot of random chance that gets involved with that. And just one quick follow up on expected goals. Um, so Shane and others have done work like in other sports where, you know, expected goals would be a function maybe of the angle the location on the yep. field. But now that we have motion tracking data, are you also able to take into account where the defenders are or is it pu- purely a function of where the person shooting the ball is or have we move to the next stage where we have the location and where the defenders are? So it completely depends on the data provider, right? So uh, there are companies like StatsBomb that take into account a uh, number of defenders near the zone, pressure on the ball, things like that. Whereas other companies that don't have tracking data, you know, will use angle um, you know, length, distance from the goal type style of play um, to measure the, ch- the chance probability. So it really depends on the data provider and it depends on who you ask, um, how they measure it. Um, but both give a pretty good assessment of, uh, of chance creation. It's actually very similar probably to, to like a, a weighted average in baseball, whereas, uh, you know, launch angle and exit velocity would, can predict hit really well. Angle and distance from the goal can predict, you know, a goal scoring opportunity pretty well. Right. Sam, curious where we are in on that issue in soccer right now. The first the first use of that was to understand because there's so much noise, get a better sense of the quality of team play. Um, you can I remember I remember Tim Howard being given a lot of credit for the for his performance against Belgium, even though the US lost because of how many shots he blocked his his goals against expected was the top in the tournament. So that's the kind of the initial use, but to what extent have you gotten to the, to a level where you can say, which players contribute to their being good uh, shot opportunities. So, so rather than worrying about shot conversion, it's like, what about shot creation? Who's on the, who's on the pitch when the opportunities are high, who makes assist between two choices, one player who's got a low expected conversion possibility and a second player who's got a higher expected conversion probability. Are we to that level of analysis yet? Yeah, absolutely. Like we can, we have different algorithms, you know, to measure different, different things. Soccer is, soccer is incredibly complex. You know, the amount of possible locations of 11 players on a hundred by hundred square is, Mm -hmm. is, is incredibly high. Um, And so the amount of different combinations that we can find for different things is also incredibly high, right? It's astronomical. And so I think that's where soccer differs from, you know, other sports is that there's so many players doing so many different things in terms of space creation, passing, dribbling, shooting, that that there's a ton of different stuff you can measure. So I guess my job in a sense is to sort out through all of that stuff and find, you know, for each position, what we look for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned uh, one of the kind of factors that always seems to me to kind of separate the great soccer players from the well still great but not the top end soccer players is space creation like how much they're able to kind of create space both around them through their own skills but also just kind of defenders and creating space for their teammates to what extent is that type of space creation right now kind of just kind of manually assessed 
to the extent, or, or is more high resolution data and, and kind of algorithms that are really trying to kind of measure this concept? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, with tracking data. So every player's location on the field 25 times a second, we're actually able, you can, you can measure space that each player takes up through a Voronoi or, you know, a similar pitch control model. Um, so like friends of tracking, for example, is a, is an online, you know, webinar series that Will Spearman, who's the data scientist from Liverpool, he gave a talk about it. Um, and you can use different physics-based models to track space created on the field. So theoretically, you could apply that at a large scale to measure space creation in an actual concrete way. Um, whereas, you know, some teams definitely do it manually and say, oh, he was, he was good at creating space this game or the next. So maybe Sam, building on that, how much um, work that you'll you you foresee yourself doing is let's call it methods creation or feature engineering. In other words, or is it mainly you know how much of it is done by let's call it third party providers and providing you both the data, let's call it various analyses, or how much is done internally? I'm just trying to understand the industry a little bit versus like can you just if I mean it would be a little strange, but can you just outsource all of this and then all of it gets done or do most teams kind of do a lot of it internally? Yeah. So you could absolutely outsource everything. It's totally possible to do that. Um, but as you've seen in the shift with major league baseball, you know, they're able to outsource everything, but they don't because what, what they want is, you know, algorithms and processes specific to them. So yeah, it's possible to outsource everything like it is with any other industry in consulting, but we're seeing a shift right now in soccer analytics where, you know, teams are trying to hire data scientists because they want that specificity within all of their departments. So you see, um, you know, Kevin Minkus, a good friend of mine, just got hired as the director of analytics in Chicago, Sam Gregory in Miami. Uh, Lucy Rushton was just hired as general manager of DC United. She has an analytics background. So teams are starting to want to build these processes specifically rather than getting, I guess you could say, um, stock algorithms, off-the-shelf algorithms. They want specific you know, to, to them, and that's why this hiring shift has occurred. Uh, following kind of maybe 15, 20 years behind baseball. Sam, the, it's a it's a great sign to see that kind of hiring. I, I'm sure there's still a lot of heterogeneity in the league in the extent to which clubs are using the information and incorporating people like you into the decision-making process. How would you characterize where soccer is on that front? Well, how much of a voice does analytics have at the decision-making table? Um, what's the culture of analytics in soccer right now and how would you put that relative you've been in baseball um and obviously they're pretty far advanced basketball has gotten real advanced real quick football is still a big battle hockey is a pretty big battle where would you put soccer yeah i think it actually it's almost impossible to give a blanket answer to that because every team is so different you know i've been i've been around environments and i've seen environments where data you know bringing even bringing it up is is taboo, right? Because it's, it's people, practitioners that have been around for a while that, you know, know what they bring to the table. And so it's the same kind of battles that you see with the beginning of every sport or any business incorporating data. So it's, you know, it's completely club dependent. Some clubs, it is the go-to for everything, you know, and it is, they have a seat at the decision, you know, they can make decisions and they can aid decisions fairly easily with a great workflow. Other clubs, like I said, completely non-existent in all facets of the game. And they're just looking at, <laughs> you know, video or their, their gut feeling. I think where you, where you mesh everything together is probably, probably the best because analytics, you know, we're too early in, in soccer for anybody to make, be making a claim that, 
you know, they're totally right based on the analytics alone. You know, you have to lean on people and be open in discussions about what they think as well, because analytics is never going to be the answer to everything. Real quickly, as a follow-up on that, if you had to say, if you had to put your chips on one thing that analytics could be most helpful with right now in soccer, that you're most confident in, that this is a margin that we could add some value, what would that be? Uh, player development would be my guess. Now, that's spoken like a guy comes out of player development. What, in what, way, does, in what way does analytics help you in player development? And I just want to be clear, Sam. I just want to, in your answer, please differentiate between player evaluation and player development, because those are two different things. So which one, which one are you focused on, like evaluating players to draft or bring in or trying to make your current players better? I just want to make sure for our listeners it's clear. Well, I, so, so yeah, the, the former is, is, my, is my job description, right? But I think, you know, like I said at the beginning, I think data falls into everything. And so if you can do both of those things, then you have a pretty good culture of not only development, but bringing in, you know, players that can, that can help the team immediately. So I think, you know, in a sense, both, right. I will, we always are trying to find marginal gains and everything. Um, but I think over, you know, the course of time when data quality becomes better in soccer, when there's body orientation data, when things like that start to be incorporated, then you can start, you know, um, doing biomechanical analysis on players and, and getting that, you know, their development even higher. Okay, but I want to stay with this because you were very clear. You took a strong position there, and I think that's telling. Also, you've been in baseball where development – I mean, baseball was first-generation sports analytics, and then they got kind of passed over by basketball. And then with their focus on development, baseball, I'd say, took the lead again. And you were right in the middle of that. You've seen what analytics can do for development. What's an example of what you think analytics can do for development in soccer, player development in soccer? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's very, it, it can go a bunch of different directions. You know, you could look at the tactical side of it and look at, you know, a player's position, let's say, and, and adjust based on that. Or you could look at their total output and see where it's lacking and say, hey, our output's not been great in, in this area. Like, we can switch and maybe do this, you know, to, to aid that or to make that better. And that's, that combines analytics with just good coaching, you know, um, and, and in, like I said, with the future of biomechanics data and sports science data, you can incorporate all of it together to figure out, you know, the exact formula for, for each player and how to get them better. Is there anything, is there anything really in sport as technical as the kinds of analysis that's done in baseball around pitching motion and swings? I mean, on both the, by both the batters and the pitchers, there's super technical breakdowns of, of how they're doing. How golf, they're you have to add golf things. to that now too. Yeah, tennis, right. so maybe actually, tennis. Golf was golf was probably first. In fact, a lot of the technology came from came from the golf world. Is there anything like that in in, in soccer? Um, not yet. So we're I'm I'm hoping that it, it does go down that route because you know I've seen firsthand you know the things that baseball can do. Even when I played, um, just on my own with simple tools like a Repsoda or a TrackMan, you know. Um, and and the reason I think you know biomechanics is so far ahead in these sports is they're all like either single person sports or matchup based. So it's really easy to track biomechanics. Whereas, you know, 22 players plus a ball on the field at one time, you know, you have to prioritize their locations and other things prior other than how they, you know, kick the ball. So I think, you know, you can find integration at youth levels, things like that, that have where biomechanics can play a real role um, rather than immediately, you know, at, at the professional level. 
Got it. Okay. I was just wondering if you see the possibility of what does the future of data look like in soccer? Like, for example, you know, could there end up being, you know, whether it's mental acuity tests, eye tracking tests, are there other forms of data that you think will eventually allow for improved player evaluation? Or is it just like, how fast can you run? How hard can you kick? What does your endurance look like? Or do you think there's going to be like mental data, eye data, all kinds of other data sets that kind of make their way in? Well, I think I, I'd be kicked out of the analytics community if I didn't say I want data, 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 more data, right? Um, but I, I think, yeah, I think all of those things that you mentioned would be, would be really cool. Eye tracking would be incredible to, to watch. But then again, you know, right now in baseball, eye tracking is only done through like optical glasses, right? In a batting cage or something similar. Um, and you can't reasonably justify players wearing glasses on the field. So you're going to have to find other ways to do it. Um, so, so I think, you know, like there's, there's a world of possibilities and I'm so grateful to be on, be on the ride and, and the journey to, to see where it goes, because I think really the possibilities are endless, right. With how many players are on the field and how much space there is. So tell us a little bit about why you chose this particular journey. You, you were in, but you were in bat, you were in soccer and then you were in baseball. You just mentioned that you had a baseball playing background. Can you can you give? Can you back up and tell us your background and how you got started and how you've made the decision to be here with the, with the club you're with now? Yeah, so it's uh, I definitely have a, a weirder story um, when compared to my peers. Um, but I I played baseball my whole life. I was only a baseball player. Um, you know, I I played in college at, at McAllister College in Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. I played professionally in the Pecos League in New Mexico for the Roswell Invaders, um, and then you know, my shoulder, I hurt my shoulders and, you know, I, I fell out of love with it kind of. Um, but, you know, that was overlapping with going to a presentation on basketball analytics when I was in college. And I was, I've always been a huge soccer fan. And I just thought it was like almost a light bulb went off. Like, this is what I want to be doing, but for soccer. Um, wow. And yeah, and it's one of those moments that you, you'll never forget. Like I can still picture where I was sitting, what, who was in the room, everything like that. Wow. Um, so I kind of, kind of used, used some connections and locked myself in the library to kind of learn math. Cause I was a political science major and nothing to do with math. Um, <laughs> and, it, but it was one of those things where you just knew that it was right. So I, I basically taught myself network math, uh, waited outside a professor, uh, Andrew Beveridge's office at McAllister and asked him for help one day. Um, and then taught myself basically how to track passes and, and, create a network, a network based off that for, for Minnesota United when I was there as an intern, mm-hmm. um, used that and then jumped into coaching soccer for a little bit at, at McAllister as student, student coach there. And then at, from then on, it was kind of down the wormhole, you know, the more classes that I took, the, the more research I did, the more I sat and kind of just taught myself how to code. Um, it was, it was more and more clear that that was, you know, I'd found what I wanted to do. Um, so I think it, you know, it's definitely a weird journey for sure, but I don't think I would have the understanding that I do today of even relationships and things like that. If I hadn't played baseball and hadn't worked in baseball, um, because there's so much application of baseball, you know, to everything else, you know, okay. So tell us about representation that, of life. That, well, <laughs> this is the way we all feel about our, our chosen expertise is like, this is all of life is right here in my judgment decision-making paper. So what, tell us about the connections between baseball and soccer, because that is, that is not obvious. If you map those, you know, all the world of sports, those two don't sit next to each other very often. 
Yeah, I mean, they're they're completely different, right? But if you look at the general themes, a lot of what baseball does, um, you can apply to anything, right? So baseball, I think Major League Baseball is probably the best indexer of talent in the entire world. Like, you know, there was just an article... What do you mean by that? Yeah. So there was an article that was just released um, where the Cincinnati Reds had 60,000 reports done over the past 50 something years on players. (laughs) Like if you can give me any company in the world that has that breadth of knowledge at at click of a button, Mm -hmm. I would be incredibly surprised. And so I think there's indexing and things like that. Um, Just simple tracking that can be done that, you know, that soccer can learn from. Okay. So, there, so, you know, there's, I think there's little question that from the personnel side, baseball has been at it in a more sophisticated way for longer than any other, than any other league. What did you learn from your time there? Um, and, and why did you, why did you go? You, you said you wanted to do this in soccer and, and you really dove in and you started doing it in soccer, but then you bumped back over to baseball. So what was the, what was going on with that? Yeah. So, I mean, one of, so my, so my pitching coach in college, he's now the pitching coordinator at the Cubs, Casey Jacobson. He's, you know, one of the most, he was a physics major at Augustana college. He's a brilliant guy. And, you know, the Cubs are super lucky to have him because I think he is really the best at what he does. I'm in a position opened up and it was one of those things where, you know, if you have the opportunity to work for the Chicago Cubs, it's, it's something that, that you <laughs> should take. Really. <laughs> right. So, and unless of I, course you can work for the 27 time world champion Yankees. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I just a reflex. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so I, I really went into it though, always um, with just an opportunity to learn, you know, I'm still really young. I'm, I'm 23. And so to have this opportunity at 22 years old, to be around some of the greatest athletes to ha- walk the face of the earth, you know, it was an opportunity that, I felt, you know, A, was, was really good to be around people like that to learn how they think um, and B, be around a staff that was brilliant and open and uses data, right? So it, it allowed me to not only be around the top players in the world, but also learn how to talk with them and see how they view the game and understand the game, which is, has brought, you know, tremendous value, even for the few weeks that I had out there before, you know, COVID happened. Um, it's brought tremendous value to my work relationships and, and life relationships in, in terms of communication, because I tell, I tell my coworkers all the time is 99% of my battle, right. Is, is communicating very sophisticated, sophisticated machine learning algorithms in a simple and easy to understand way, mm-hmm. right. Which is, mm-hmm. it's, it's impossible to do. Well, it's interesting. You would draw that connection. That's it's, I've ne- I don't think I've talked to anybody who's made that transition and you're talking about you're relating developing players and the communication involved with developing players to the communication challenge of selling analytics inside the organization i think that's super interesting and it seems to me like you have a pretty rare profile for someone to be in that job before we transition i've just got to hear what was it like for you after having pitched your whole life and and played minor league baseball and then all of a sudden you're walking around uh, Wrigley Field or, or the training facility with the Cubs with, the, with that level of player. Like, what did that, what was your reaction? I mean, you, that was your sport. And what was it like to step up into that level and see guys executing like that? I mean, I think it was, you know, we could talk all day about, you know, the, the difference in sporting level at different sports and, you know, the width and breadth and density of not of, you know, skill level. Um, then again, I, you walk into the facility and you see like a major leaguer on your first day there and you're, you know, you, you get those jitters. It was, 
it was certainly cool. Um, but I think at the end of the day, right, like these are, these are my people I work with. And so it, I had to maintain a relationship that was always professional and, um, and such with them, because at the end of the day, they're looking for me, they're looking at me for knowledge, right. To better themselves. And I'm looking to them for knowledge on better ways to communicate. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that there's, you know, those jitters go, go away pretty quick when you realize, you know, you got to do the job. Mm-hmm. Sam, I just wanted to go back quickly to your comment about communicating machine learning and other stuff in the businesses I've worked with, which have gone from sports teams like the Eagles to big tech companies. Um, the concepts of out of sample validation and randomized experiments seem to go pretty well to lots of people. Um, do is that the same in the worlds that you've lived in? Like if you build a model and you say, well, look, I, I can predict data that's not inside the model or you know what? My job is to generate interesting empirical hypotheses and then we run a small scale experiment. Have those ideas infiltrated the sports world as you've seen it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think everybody's going to be skeptical as am I when someone says, you know, I can predict the future. Um, but I think as I think as long as you go into every um, conversation about it open and with a really like showing that, you know, A, you're passionate about what you're doing and B, you know, Hey, here's, here's something that's going to give us another voice in the room. That's a general guide. Um, people are going to be pretty open to it. Um, as long as, you know, you're not super forceful of, you know, this is the correct answer. This is what it is because, you know, it's not, and stats are not sub stats are not objective, right? It's just, it is another subjective voice, but it, it tends to lean, you know, as objective as possible. <laughs> so I'm, I'm blown away by the wisdom you have this early in your analytics career. And it does seem like it comes from that development um, path, that coaching player development path you're on, because there's an analogy there that has not been talked about much. And, and it seems like it's going to serve you well. I mean, I this- think it also, yeah, like it, it also comes from, I think, I think playing, you know, like I was, Right. Like I, I don't have a major league profile. I'm not, you know, a big, naturally strong, gifted guy. So I needed, you know, my analytics journey, actually, like I, I pinpoint that, you know, that, that spot in, in soccer where I realized it was soccer that I wanted to do, but it started in baseball a long time before that, you know, my, my hitting coach in high school, you know, Brian McKenna is a hitting guru and he runs a great uh, facility out, out in Maryland. And, and it was him telling me, you know, we should hit the ball in the air instead of the ground. And then it was me getting to college and, and sitting behind on the bench behind guys that were hitting balls out of the yard and I'm peppering balls with a shortstop, you know, well, at the end of the day, there's a breaking point for everybody and, and everybody becomes the student. And so that's, that was my point for me where I was like, you know what, I'm tired of sitting on the bench. So I started getting on the rap soto, you know, I, I started getting the weight room more to be able to hit the ball out of the yard so that I could play. Um, and that's, that's where my development journey started and having those tough conversations with coaches, you know, of who don't see eye to eye with baseball analytics, you know, those tough conversations early on in my life as I think have, have definitely helped a lot. Wow. Really cool. Listen, Sam, we're, we're late in the time we have with you, but we got to hear your your perspective on this super league stuff that's been talked about all of a sudden the world's talking about this super league so um have the red bulls been called are they going to be part of the league (laughs) what's what's going on yeah so that i think the super league is is crazy i mean it was a crazy news dump today um you know it's it's i think from an analytics perspective it would be really interesting to see the difference in in workloads of players that play at 
you know, the elite level constantly against other elite teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's from strictly a selfish data point of view. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think it, I think long-term for the sport, it's, it's not great. Um, I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of the way European, you know, soccer is now, um, with the pyramid of, of soccer and, you know, the tiny little club from small town, nowhere can, mm-hmm. you know, play one of the biggest clubs in England at their, at their home ground in the middle of a neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is the coolest thing in the world. Um, you know, where there's like a tiny little pub attached to the stadium, right? There's nothing cooler than that. And I think with, with the super league, it, it's going to take away from that and go more towards a, um, the money versus, you know, the, the true sporting competition, which is, which is why, you know, we're all in it to begin with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. While we're on Europe, last question, uh, how, how would you compare the sophistication of analytics and the adoption of analytics in European soccer versus what you're seeing in MLS right now? I mean, I think MLS MLS is on the forefront of analytics and soccer. You know, there are select teams across the world, like Liverpool, for example. Um, I think AC Milan have a really good sports science buildup that, you know, that are leading the way in Europe 100%. But as a whole with a league comparison, I think MLS is, is way ahead of the curve, you know, with the continued hires, like I mentioned before, Kevin, Sam, you know, you have two of the most brilliant people in the world and Devin Pluer in Toronto, Ravi Ramanani in in Seattle, um, you know, Corey Jez just got hired in Austin. So there's, there's so many people that are getting hired in, in MLS that I think it's, it's moving pretty forward. It's going to, it's going to kind of hopefully be an industry leading standard in, in terms of, you know, comparison across the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great to hear. That's exciting. By the way, mentioning Robbie reminds me that the, the, the Sloan, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference was last week or the week before, I forget which, and the research paper that won the competition was on soccer it was on um on 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 uh, uh the corner kicks and cool little paper robbie and i both were judges in the semifinals there so i got to spend a half and, a day with robbie and, and those things around and it's a great point because of the the two people that wrote that paper are both employed i think by by clubs as well you have suds at, at benfica and then laurie shaw just got hired by manchester city so uh, do, doesn't get much bigger than that right so that's awesome well listen sam thanks for taking time out of your day to be with us loved hearing from you wish you the best with your work there with the new york red bulls yeah i appreciate having me on thanks guys absolutely sam goldberg data scientist with the new york red bulls after spending time with the cubs and before that dc united guys that has been another wharton moneyball another two hours of sports analytics thank you for listening for the whole team shane jensen Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner wasn't here for the last segment, but he's been around and will be again, of course, for Matty Dats, the boss man, Ian Simpkins, associate boss man. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.